Hello and welcome to the second episode of the brand new It's Nice That podcast. This is the show where we talk to leading designers, illustrators, creative directors and photographers about the delights and dramas of being a creative. We want to strip away the Instagram gloss and hear the honest truth from people who have built careers out of their creativity. How do they come up with their best ideas? What's the secret to staying inspired? And what happens when creative projects go awry? My name is Matt Alagaya. I'm the editor-in-chief of It's Nice That. And today, I'll be talking to Gail Bickler, the esteemed creative director of The New York Times magazine. She's going to be talking us through what makes an attention-grabbing magazine cover and selecting five front pages from her time at the publication that she's especially proud of. Later on, we'll also check in with a friend of ours in Mumbai and hear which area of India's creative capital keeps him inspired. That's all coming up on the It's Nice That podcast. First, though, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined again on the podcast by my colleague, Lucy Borton, our senior editor. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thanks. Yeah, sorry to be very British about this, but I feel like the weather today has just been so hideous that it deserves to be spoken about. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) It's just not helping at all in this mid-February vibe, is it? Now, Lucy, you've you've had a listen to to the interview with Gail already. What were some of the bits that that you found most interesting? Yeah, it's so brilliant. I love Gail and have always really admired her covers that she's created over at the New York Times with her team. I think one thing that really stood out to me and that was really nice to hear, I guess, behind the curtain of is her relationship with the magazine's editor, Jake Silverstein. I think that sometimes maybe with such an established title such as that, you kind of don't expect it to be so collaborative sometimes or to have those like small conversations which she gives us a bit of insight to I think as well there was one particular really lovely bit when you discuss a particular cover which has Obama on the front and how the headline for that piece actually kind of came out of her art direction which I think will be a nice note for all of the creative directors and art directors who are listening. Definitely. Yeah, it's really interesting. I guess, you know, I follow Gail and have done for many years on Twitter and she always puts up a picture of the cover and it's just really nice to see how those things actually come together. There's a really interesting bit where she's talking about a cover she worked on with Jessica Walsh, where she says she needed just kind of one or two iterations of that, whereas normally it's kind of thousands and thousands of different files that yeah go into creating a final cover. Yeah, definitely. I really love it as well when she shares on Twitter how many iterations of the cover went through. It's just so nice to see that level of detail. It was also really lovely when she was describing how she asks Jake to describe a story in one sentence, which is so nice. I think as an editor myself, I would definitely struggle with that sometimes. (laughs) Oh God, yeah. Yeah, I found it fascinating just hearing about their relationship and about how important it is actually to have an editor who sees things kind of holistically and, and can think a bit like a designer as well. And it sounds like Jake Silverstein definitely is that. What also really comes to the fore is just the sheer number of, I guess, incredible collaborators that, that Gail and her team have worked with on covers and features over the years. It's a very enviable lineup of creative heavyweights, let's say. Yeah. And how she picked from however many hundreds of covers she must have done in her career. So yeah, it's lovely to hear the highlights. Absolutely. I think it's over over 400 in total. Well, listen, thanks so much for your, your thoughts on that, Lucy. Without further ado, let's hear that chat with Gail Bickler.
Hi, Gail. Thanks so much for joining us today and uh, welcome to the It's Nice That podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really pleased to have you. How's everything going this week? I feel like uh, we're speaking on a Wednesday, so I don't know where that normally sits on the kind of magazine production cycle. It is towards the end. Um, We're one day before shipping the final files, so many files are shipping today and then the rest go tomorrow. Busy day. A busy day. Well, thank you so much uh, for fitting us in. So for our discussion today, we're going to be talking about magazine design and specifically about how magazine covers come together. You're going to be talking us through five New York Times magazine covers from your time working at the publication and giving us an insight into how they were pulled together and why you're proud of them. For everyone listening, don't worry, we'll be putting these covers in an article on itsnicethat.com and we'll include a link in the show notes so you can see them while you listen to this interview. But Gail, I wanted to start today by asking you about your criteria for picking these covers. What was the reasoning behind your choices here? The magazine is a general interest magazine, so we cover a huge variety of topics, and a lot of those topics require different approaches. And I've been at the magazine for quite a while. I've been the design director for close to seven years, so I've done over 400 covers myself and my staff, so it's a lot to pick from. Also, we cover so many different topics, and I'm often proud of things for different reasons. You know, for example, if we're covering something in a conflict zone that a photographer has like risked their life to go get the image for, we will sometimes publish a story that calls attention to a humanitarian crisis or, you know, stories like these. And I'm often really proud of those kinds of stories. Those tend to have documentary photography, which our amazing photo team facilitates and commissions. So we have a lot of different approaches to covers and have made some great things in all of those areas and work with pretty amazing contributors. For this, I decided to talk about covers where ideas or design and art direction have driven the covers because I tend to have a pretty big hand in those. And also because usually there's a little bit more of a story in terms of how they came together. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really strong looking at the lineup, how I guess the idea for each one comes across so thoroughly, which is amazing. I guess maybe just one more question before we get into the lineup. What does the process ordinarily look like for a cover? I'm sure people at home will be interested in this. Is it one of the last things you work on once all the stories are kind of gathered in and on page? Or is it something you're working on kind of from the outset alongside gathering all the rest of the stories as well? We work on it from the outset, for sure. And and a lot of times, whatever our cover approach is, will sometimes extend into, into the future well. So something that we've started on the cover, maybe we'll you know have an iteration of that or an extension of the narrative on the inside. But it's all developed simultaneously. Well, let's take a look at the first cover then. This is from relatively early on in your tenure as design director of the magazine. And I guess perhaps you could start just by telling us a little bit about the background to the issue and, and what the theme was there. It's a cover for our um, food issue. It's from 2014. And the theme was kids and food. It was a really fun issue. We had a photo essay of what kids eat around the world and a number of other pieces. But we wanted to try a conceptual approach for the cover. So we reached out to Christoph Neiman, who is a frequent collaborator of the magazine and just a brilliant mind. <laughs> and we asked him to make some sketches. And he sent us a number of sketches. And we were drawn to one in particular that was a picture of a father and daughter cooking together. And it had like a giant like egg at the top. It was had an interesting perspective. So you'd be looking down on them, but the egg was very close to your face. You know, we just loved this. It was so graphic and joyful. We ended up removing the father because we thought it was okay to just focus on kids. And because it also made it more stripped down and more graphic. And, you know, that's one of the things that I love about covers often when something is very simple and bold and really eye-catching. There was a process with Christoph and I. 
where we also were trying to really integrate his illustration with the design. And as you said, it was early on in my tenure at the, at the magazine as the design director. And I was really kind of trying to think a lot about what my approach to covers would be. I don't think I had fully developed that because often, you know, there was an approach in place and I had been there for a while. But like at the beginning of my time as a design director, I wanted to figure out how to, you know, make it my own. So one of the things that I was doing was really playing around with the logo and seeing how much I could obscure it. And, you know, kind of thinking a little bit about, you know, how much that's there for branding versus an element that you can play with. And like, how much do you need to see in order to understand that it is the New York Times magazine? We have an advantage on that front because, you know, it's sent out in the paper. I was going to say, there's probably a bit of context there of like not being on newsstand that you can kind of play around with that kind of thing. You know, you don't need to necessarily have the masthead really clear on the, on the front cover necessarily for people to know where you are. Yeah, that's something that we, we've definitely done a lot of, just kind of obscuring it. And this is a pretty extreme case where you can just see the and an M, <laughs> but hopefully that's a, the typeface is you know, enough of a signifier. I mean, one, th- one question that kind of comes off the back of that for me is, you know, you obviously talked about how you wanted to, I guess, impose a bit of your own tone of voice and your own style on the covers. Can you see your own style of cover kind of evolving over time as well? It's maybe something that we'll come on to when we, when we talk about the other covers in your lineup. But do you feel like that was kind of an early iteration of a Gail Bickler cover and, and that we've seen an, an involvement of that since, an evolution of that? I think that is the case in some form, but it took me a little while to kind of find my footing, I think. You know, I had an advantage because I'd been at the magazine for 10 years before before becoming the design director and worked under really great people like Rem Duplessis, who were doing, you know, amazing design. So I, I had experimented with that space and kind of, you know, had a good understanding of what I thought made a good cover. And I think what ended up happening was we ended up really stripping things down as much as possible. And, you know, the magazine was already pretty stripped down. We just talked about how it's, it's not a newsstand magazine. So oftentimes, you know, we would be able to do things that other magazines wouldn't be able to do, like, you know, put a really difficult to digest or look at story on the cover, you know, tough topics. Sometimes we would have really tiny type and, you know, we had a lot of freedom already. But we also redesigned the magazine, I think maybe about a few months into my time as the design director. And, you know, that gave a lot of opportunity to, you know, change the look and feel and really think a lot about what we wanted these covers to do. And one thing that we ended up doing was deciding that we would almost never, you know, put a headline for more than one story onto the cover, which allowed us to be, you know, very simple and graphic. One thing that's also been great is that Jake Silverstein, who's the editor of the magazine, has also been really willing to, you know, write to concepts that we come up with, or, you know, if we ask, can we just have a line here? Or can it just be the head? He's willing to do that, you know, he'll write to that. In certain cases, he thinks it needs more nuance, and maybe he'll say, no, you can't just have that be like a two-word head. But, <laughs> but you know, for the most part, he's really, really flexible on that, and that's been really helpful too. Amazing. Well, that actually moves really nicely onto your second cover, which came out, I think, about a year after Trump's election. And it shows a portrait of Obama, but it looks like someone's turned the page almost halfway across his face, still very recognizably Barack Obama. And the headline reads, why can't the Democrats turn the page? Tell us a little bit about about that cover. So politics covers are often some of the hardest stories to art. Every time I we have one, it's like a, a kind of thought process of like what symbols you could use, how you could make it original. If it's going to be a portrait, a lot of times, you know, it's not like you're photographing an actor or, you know, somebody who's used to the camera. There's a lot of like things that are a little bit harder about 
politics in terms of the visuals. We actually had to get a lot more used to doing politics covers recently. We've, we've done a lot more political coverage. <laughs> I'm not surprised, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But for this story, it was about how the Democrats didn't really have a plan moving forward. That was kind of the brief that I was given, and it was still being written. And when I got the piece, there was a line in it that basically said that Obama was really elected on his own like celebrity and popularity, and that he didn't have a platform that Democrats were going to be able to build on to get momentum. And so that was something that made me think just that one line really spurred the idea of using Obama in some form and then combining that with the metaphor of turning the page. Yeah, I proposed that. Jake really liked it. The headline came out of that idea. So I guess the thing that I'm saying about him being like really flexible and writing sometimes to things that we would come up with, this is a case of that. I basically spent a whole bunch of time printing out images of Obama and like folding them over and trying to figure out like which image had the right attitude, how much do you want to see of his face, how recognizable is he if you cover up, you know, both of his eyes and he's very recognizable. But a lot of experimentation on that front. And then we had the photographer Jamie Chung shoot it. And Jamie's done a lot of covers like this for us. I feel like I'm always asking him, like, can you shoot this balloon or can you shoot this crumpled up thing? Or so he's really he's really great about it. And uh, he shot this cover. And I mean, it takes a certain amount of courage, I feel, to cover up Barack Obama's face, particularly in a magazine kind of based in New York, which is a bastion of uh, kind of democratic politics. Was there a little bit of umming and ahhing about that internally? Or are you kind of, yeah, absolutely fine doing something like that? <laughs> you know, not too much. Jake did ask me about it once and asked me basically, was I planning on covering as much of Obama's face as we were covering in the mock-up? And I said yes, um, and that, that was part of the idea, the part of the humor, just kind of onto the next and a, a little bit irreverent, which I think sometimes magazine covers, when they have attitude, it's helpful. They have a little more impact or humor. And he agreed with that, and so he didn't ask me about it again. It's interesting. I mean, you've talked about Jake Silverstein a couple of times. It's so important, isn't it, to have an editor who's also quite design-minded, and obviously Jake has that yeah, really design-minded brain where he, he sees everything as not just words, but also kind of what's going to go with it, what the images are going to go with it. He really thinks about it holistically. And I find that to be so helpful. Like I said, he oftentimes will, you know, change directions because of a, a visual that we come up with. I always ask him to describe the story in one sentence because I feel like that's really helpful in terms of figuring out what he really wants to convey, what the story is about, what the attitude is. And then I will try to come up with visuals based on that. Or if we're working with a collaborator who's going to do the concepting, I'll give them that line or, you know, somebody on my team works with it. But we also do that. And then we also allow for the idea that you might read the piece and come up with a different angle on the visual based on something that's in the piece. And if that is still really true to the story and makes a compelling visual, a lot of times we will switch over and the language will be rewritten because we didn't come up with the visual that matched it. All right, let's move on to uh, cover number three now. What can you tell us about this cover? This is a cover that we published in December of 2017, and it was for a package on power and sex in the workplace. And we published it after the revelations from Harvey Weinstein. So it was, it was a lot about sexual harassment, and there was a piece in it that was about whisper networks. So it was about, you know, women through word of mouth warning other women about, you know, dangers in the workplace. And that started me thinking about language, and how it's used. And I thought about the phrase, you know, he said, she said, which is a phrase that's really often used to discredit women. I typeset the word he said, and then added onto it in brush lettering an S at the beginning and a period at the end. So it modified to be she said, and the period was meant to indicate that there wouldn't be another phrase to that and that women should be believed. I had made a mock-up of this and then wanted to work with 
someone to do the lettering and asked Jessica Walsh if she would collaborate on it. And I gave her the sketch and told her that I was open to like other ways of executing it and interpreting it. And she decided that the sketch was the way to go. It was very simple. That's something that I like about when you have a conceptual idea. I was just thinking about like the aesthetics. So sometimes stripping away the aesthetics and making it you know, feel like it's underdesigned or or simple helps to convey that this is really about idea. It's not about execution. I guess um, you mentioned there that the, the sketch was remarkably close to the final outcome. Maybe just give us an idea of how unusual that is. How often are you doing hundreds of iterations or 10 different ideas before you land on the kind of final cover? Because this, this seems like quite an unusual thing that you managed to do a sketch and actually the, the final cover looks pretty close to that. Yeah, it's incredibly unusual. Generally, we do like tons of sketches, come up with different ideas. Sometimes there'll be an idea that comes out of that, either from us or a collaborator that we think works and we work to develop it. Other times there's a kernel of an idea that we then try to, you know, modify. And then there's a whole process where we take it and, you know, after we've created the image, we then design over it and there's, you know, 70 iterations of that. So it's a real process. So this was very unusual to just, you know, make this and have it be done, basically. I would say, though, that we did spend a lot of time looking at the lettering. Jessica made like tons of different S's and it was really important to be able to feel the hand of the person writing. And so we spent a lot of time looking at different S's and, and labored over that. That was the one thing. Your fourth cover is a brilliant one about pop culture, and it features a portrait of Madonna at 60, but it's kind of a, a look of Madonna that I don't think we've seen before. Walk me through this one, because even just looking at it from an outsider's perspective, I can only imagine how many moving parts there were to this one. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so we published a story on Madonna because she was turning 60 and we wanted to do something on her influence over the decades. So we had the idea to work with vintage imagery in addition to shooting a picture of her. And we decided to work with JR, who often does like large scale pastings outside in urban areas. The first thing that occurred to me was maybe we could have him do a pasting of her on a, on a building and maybe the window would be open and she'd be sitting in it or there might be some way to do something with scale. He told us that he um, reserves that kind of treatment for his artwork that is really is humanitarian and he really only pastes unknown people onto outdoor surfaces. So we decided to move the shoot inside to his studio and he sent us a body of work that he had been working on that was basically people interacting with paper. And that seemed to fit really well with the idea of using a vintage image. From there, we started to try to pick out imagery. We looked at a lot of different images. There was a process where I put all of these images into a cover to try and determine, you know, what it might look like. And then, you know, Kathy Ryan and I, she's the director of photography for the magazine. We went to JR's studio and went to the shoot. And he had all these images printed out large scale. He even had some imagery that was printed on paper and then wrapped around almost like large canvases. It was wrapped around like wood frames. And then he had other imagery that was loose and maybe... We would try, you know, experimenting with her lying on it on the floor and use it in other ways. So there was a lot of experimentation with that. And then, you know, and some of that experimentation ended up inside. There was a, a really nice photo of Madonna basically making a dress out of one of those giant pieces of paper with a photograph of her. And then we settled on an image for the cover, which was her coming through an image of her younger self. So there's a slit and she's kind of coming through it. So it was a like, really unusual way to kind of get both in, but we thought it was quite beautiful. And then we added a silver ink underneath it. 
which I think also made it special. There was a moment where we weren't sure if, if we should do that because it was a vintage image and it might take away from that idea. And also you kind of don't know sometimes that might flatten an image out, but we ran a test proof on it and decided that it really added a lot. I guess it's a testament to the kind of pulling power of the New York Times magazine as well, that you have that much time with someone like Madonna. I mean, you kind of hear stories about magazines where you've got kind of three minutes to shoot a portrait of someone for the cover and how stressful that can be. But it sounds like you had quite a good amount of time with a massive star like that. Yeah, it it definitely helps to have that kind of a platform. And, you know, Madonna was very generous with her time, but that also happens to us. We're given a really short time frame to get a shot of someone. For example, when we photographed Obama, not for the cover that I talked about, um, but when we actually went and took pictures of him, um, we were given seven minutes to get that shot. You know, I find often politicians will give us shorter time frames, like a half an hour. So it does happen to us too. Your fifth cover is, is from the first phase of the pandemic, and it tries to capture a bit of that sense of monotony and, and almost kind of insanity that lots of us were feeling at that time. I'm sure everyone can remember. Talk me through the thinking behind that, that final cover, your fifth one. Yes, we had just done a bunch of really kind of terrifying stories on the pandemic. It, this was about two and a half months into the pandemic, and a lot of people were quarantined. And so we wanted to do something about that. So we made this quarantine journal that had, you know, that artists and writers contributed to. Ben Granjanet, who's the art director on the magazine, was designing it, and he had commissioned Brian Ray to do a lot of illustration inside about the pandemic that related to different stories. He's done some really great stuff on the pandemic that is humorous and a little lighter than many of the other things that we had been publishing. And so we asked him to try a cover. And one of the things we asked him about was the idea of conveying like the sense of time, like that time is moving so slowly or that time is distorted. And I think Jake had even suggested something about the notches you put on a wall, that kind of classic visual. But he gave us a lot of sketches. One of them was of a person lying down with a snail circling them and it's spiraling outward. And the snail was leaving a trail that was like this, this line. And in looking at it, we, we really thought that the line itself really conveyed the sense of time, and maybe you didn't need the snail. So he ended up removing the snail and actually having the person draw the line, and we asked him to make it fill the entire cover. I think it really did a great job of conveying the kind of claustrophobia and insanity and repetition that a lot of people were feeling. So I think it really hit a nerve with some people. Absolutely. It's a, it's a really powerful image. I think it almost feels to me, to my eye, like a, the kind of rings of a tree trunk, you know, when they kind of capture or at least like show the passage of, of seasons. And I guess it's kind of similar thing of like time and uh, it just really looked like you kind of got a cross section of a trunk, a tree trunk there. And, and there's this, this man in the middle, really powerful. I was hoping that we didn't drive him insane with this image, with all the repetition of actually drawing it. Actually, Gail, this, this leads me on to something that I, I wanted to ask you about, and that's the pandemic and how you managed to put out a magazine without fail every week during yeah, an incredibly difficult time. I guess we're still living through it right now, aren't we? I mean, we're both speaking from home today, but what was it like when the pandemic first hit and you were you know, still having to hit those deadlines? Well, I should first say that I was really grateful to have a job that I could do from home um, and also a job that really had a purpose. You know, it felt really good to be able to put information out there to help people understand what was happening. It was such a like confusing, hard time. But for me as a manager, it was actually pretty tough. It's hard to understand exactly what the designers are doing. You know, if you're in the office, you can kind of see if somebody is working late or, you know, like doesn't have enough to do or, you know, it's just a lot easier to understand what's happening within the group. 
And so that was a little bit difficult. Also, as somebody who gives a lot of visual input, I tend to spend a lot of my day on Google Hangouts. Um, and I find that format pretty hard, both in terms of being able to just give visual input, because when you're in person, you can just like point at something and say, can you move that over here? When you're on a call, you basically have to describe everything and be very exacting, or you have to email it, which you know takes time. But also I find that that format is really hard in terms of how you interact with people. It's a very transactional format where if you're on a call with somebody, it's because you need something from them or they need something from you. And so conversations tend to be very direct versus how they were in the office, which was that, you know, you might somebody might see something that you were making and comment on it, or, you know, you might run into somebody and just like, you know, talk about an upcoming issue and come up with an idea. There's just a lot of these kind of chance meetings that are no longer part of the way we make the magazine. But there were some good things that also came out of it. it I know a lot of people on the staff enjoyed having some flexibility, being able to see their families more, eliminating the commute and doing other things with that time. Um, and also we added a meeting because we have to kind of schedule everything. We added a meeting with our editor where we showed all of our designs and talked through them. And I think some people really found that to be a good meeting. I think, you know, particularly young people found that there was much more transparency in being able to hear all that stuff that they maybe wouldn't have heard if we were in the office. As the, hopefully the pandemic gets to a place where we can come back to work, we're actually going to do a, a hybrid format where we come into the office three days a week and stay home two days. And hopefully we'll all be in the office all at the same time on those three days, because really magazine making is, is just a collaborative endeavor, you know, in every way. So it's hard to make something when you're not together making it. But we hope to have the best of both worlds. Yeah, it certainly sounds like you've got the best of both worlds coming up, at least when you, when you do move back. You'll hopefully have a bit more of that serendipity that you were talking about with the kind of chance meetings and the chance conversations, which always, as we all know, improves creativity, but also hopefully the flexibility to see family and things like that as well. So yeah, it sounds great. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. I'm hopeful. <laughs> Well, Gail, thank you so much for, for taking us through your five covers there. Five covers, as you mentioned earlier, that have a particular leaning towards art direction, graphic design, I guess being a bit more conceptual as well. And those covers that you're really proud of. As I mentioned earlier, we'll put those covers on itsnicethat.com and link to them in the show notes so that you listening at home can have a look at them as a companion to this interview. But Gail, maybe just a final question for you, which is obviously connected, very connected to everything we've been talking about. What do you think makes a successful cover? How do you know you've really, I guess, like struck gold with a cover? I think you know when it's an immediate read, and oftentimes before you even put language on it, people understand what it says. And also that it's impactful, that it communicates with people on an emotional level. And I think that some of the better covers that I've done have captured something that's just out there kind of in the air, you know, something that people are thinking about and they connect with it. I think that can't always happen. <laughs> there are plenty of covers that don't do that, but I think, you know, instances where that happens are often really impactful in terms of what a cover can do. I mean, that's certainly true of a lot of the covers that you've uh, you talked us through today, including the Brian Ray one uh, that you just mentioned from the start of the pandemic. Listen, Gail, thank you so much for talking us through your five covers and for joining us on the It's Nice That podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for, for being our guest. Thank you. That was Gail Bickler there. If you want to hear a longer version of that interview, well, you can by joining Extra Nice. It's Nice That's membership program. You'll get your hands on a host of benefits and goodies, including a bit more time and a few extra insights from Gail. Please do check it out. 
That's nearly all we have time for, but before we head off, we've got one last treat in store. Every episode we hear from a creative somewhere in the world who's going to tell us about a place in their city that keeps them inspired. For this second outing, we're heading to Mumbai, India's creative capital, and we're going to hear from the artist Samir Kulavur. One of his favorite spots is the city's historic fort district. Let's hear now from Samir. Hello, my name is Samir Kulavur and I am an artist from Mumbai, also known as Bombay in India. One of the most inspiring places to me in Bombay is the fort area of Bombay. The reason being the sheer diversity of the place. The fort area is defined by its uh, distinct and the range of architecture that it accommodates. Right from Indo-Saracenic architecture to modernist buildings. There are a lot of art deco buildings as well and the more recent aluminium and glass structures that have come up. So in that sense, it's a great mix of heritage and contemporary architecture. What also sets it apart is the range of buildings that we see uh, in terms of the people that occupy it. On one side, there are these colleges and academia, the Bombay University. Then there is the high court. On the other side, you have the sports grounds. And behind the fort area is the military and navy section at the docks. More recently, there have been a bunch of uh, hip cafes and bars that have come up. It's also one of the most important art areas of uh, art districts of Bombay in the sense that it houses the most important museum of the western part of India. And uh, there are a lot of galleries that are strewn around the whole area. So you see a very wide range of people that keep coming in every day. And that's what, uh, you know, really sets it apart for me. Thank you so much. That was Samir Kulavur telling us about the fort area of Mumbai. Many thanks to Samir. And I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. My thanks to Gail Bickler and to my colleague Lucy Borton for joining me here on this second episode. I'm sure you've listened to podcasts before, so this won't come as a surprise. But if you have enjoyed listening to this, it would make us very happy if you could write a review on your favourite podcast app. And even better, if you could also subscribe to the show. The It's Nice That podcast is produced by Palm Tree Island. Our theme music was written and performed by Sounds Like These. Thanks for listening and see you next time.